Welcome back, humans. Welcome to part two of Sapiential Theology. Now, if you're still feeling a little bit frazzled and confused from part one, the important thing to remember when digging into these visions of Hildegard of Bingen is that, similar with um, Catherine of Siena, there's a lot from scripture that she had heard preached to her that is just sort of becoming meshed together in her mind. Sort of like the way things happen in a dream. Dreams a lot of the time will be distorted, but it's a, a lot of information is just kind of blended together into one concept. That's what happens a lot of the time in these visions. And it's what happens a lot of the time in what uh, Catherine of Siena says in the dialogue. A lot of different concepts just become one thing. We tend to, to want to compartmentalize and chop things up into different slices. But that it doesn't, it doesn't always work that way. That doesn't always happen. So that's the important advice I will give to you if this gets a little too confusing and I'm, I'm jumping around from this scripture passage to that scripture passage and back and forth and da-da-da-da. Just remember that it's, it's all things that she had received and heard and then she blended them together into one concept. Okay? So now we're going to answer a question that you may or may not have. But I'm going to answer it anyway. Where exactly in the Old Testament is wisdom referred to as a she? Let's look at the book of wisdom, chapter 6. It says, Exhortation to seek wisdom. Hear therefore kings and understand. Learn you magistrates of the earth's expanse. Give ear, you who have power over multitudes and lord it over throngs of peoples. Because authority was given you by the Lord, and sovereignty by the Most High, you shall probe your works and scrutinize your counsels. Because though you were ministers of his kingdom, you did not judge rightly and did not keep the law, nor walk accordingly to the will of God, according to the will of God. Terribly and swift he shall come against you, because severe judgment awaits the exalted. For the lowly may be pardoned out of mercy, but the mighty shall be mightily put to the test. For the ruler of all shows no partiality, nor does... nor does he fear greatness, because he himself made the great as well as the small, and provides for all alike. But for those in power, a rigorous scrutiny impends. To you, therefore, O princes, are my words addressed, that you may learn wisdom, and that you may not fall away. For those who keep the holy precepts, hallowed will be found holy, and those learned in them will have ready a response. Desire, therefore, my words. Long for them, and you will be instructed." resplendent and unfading is wisdom and she is readily perceived by those who love her and found by those who seek her she hastens to make herself known to those who desire her one who watches for her at dawn will not be disappointed for she will be found sitting at the gate for setting your heart on her is the perfection of prudence, and whoever keeps vigil for her is quickly free from care, because she makes her rounds seeking those worthy of her, and graciously appears to them on the way, 
and goes to meet them with full attention. Again, that's wis- the book of wisdom. This is in the Old Testament, the book of wisdom, chapter 6. Wisdom is referred to as she. After introducing wisdom as something that all those in authority with any kind of power must have wisdom. Then wisdom is introduced as a she. Where else in the Old Testament? Flip back. Proverbs. The book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 8. The discourse of wisdom. Does not wisdom call and understanding raise her voice? On the top of the heights along the road, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. By the gates at the approaches of the city, in the entryways, she cries aloud. And then it goes into what she says. Wisdom, though, again, is a she. So we see this in the Book of Wisdom, and we see this in Proverbs. Let's see if it's anywhere else. Let me check quick. It's also in Sirach. Let's go to the book of Sirach. And if you don't already know, these books are known as the wisdom books. Ben Sirah or Sirach. The wisdom, book of wisdom. And uh, Proverbs, these are all known as the wisdom books. And in each one of these, we find wisdom referred to as a woman. Wow. Here we go. In your Bible, it may say Ben Sirah. In others, it will say Sirach. I do believe in some, it's also referred to as Ecclesiasticus whatever it's called. Here is chapter 14, verses 20 to 27. It says, The search for wisdom and her blessings. Happy those who meditate on wisdom and fix their gaze on knowledge, who ponder her ways in their heart and understand her paths, who pursue her like a scout and watch at her entryway, who peep through her windows and listen at her doors, who encamp near her house, and fasten their tent pegs next to her walls, who pitch their tent beside her, and dwell in a good place, who build their nest in her leaves, and lodge in her branches, who take refuge from the heat in her shade, and dwell in her home. It's a lot of hers and a lot of she's. So, and just in case you were wondering, where exactly is that in the Old Testament? It's in the wisdom books. In the Book of Wisdom... It's in Sirach, or may say Ben-Sirah. It's in Proverbs. There you go. Wisdom is a she, according to the Old Testament. And so, we find in Hildegard's visions, wisdom is a she. Let's continue on with my essay, where I say, Let us now take a look at Hildegard's eighth vision, from Book 3, in which she quotes Isaiah 11, 1-3. In this passage, Isaiah is foretelling the coming of a, quote, branch out of the root of Jesse. And this branch, having the Spirit of the Lord resting upon him significantly, and this branch, sorry, and this branch having the Spirit of the Lord resting upon him. Okay. The Spirit of the Lord. So we see again, the Holy Spirit is back. 
Wisdom is a she. And then this Holy Spirit keeps coming up. What's going on here? Is is the Holy Spirit a she as well? It's not quite clear. So let's keep reading. Significantly, Isaiah further tells us in this same passage that this branch will have the spirit of wisdom. Okay, so we have the, the Holy Spirit, Spirit of God, and we have the spirit of wisdom. And all the other gifts of the Holy Spirit filling him. So this is Isaiah 11, 1 to 3, where it says, A branch shall sprout out of the root of Jesse. And this branch will have the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom, and all the other gifts of the Holy Spirit filling him. So we already know that wisdom is referred to as a she. And there, this Holy Spirit just keeps coming up. Hmm. Let's continue on. Hildegard responds in order to expound the meaning of this passage by saying, The Virgin Mary came forth from the troubles of earthly oppression. The Virgin Mary came forth from the troubles of earthly oppression into the sweetness of moral life. As a person might come forth from a house in which he was imprisoned, not rising above the roof but walking in the designated path. By this, Hildegard is commenting on Mary's being without sin. Sweetness of moral life, not rising above the roof, but walking in the designated path, or the straight and narrow, you might have heard. So, Hildegard says this means that Mary is without sin. This is referring to Mary's being without sin. Now, notice, if you know anything about the Immaculate Conception, the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, this was not stated as fact by the Church until the 1800s. Here's Hildegard of Bingen in the 12th century saying this. I find that a little interesting. To continue on, Hildegard explains that Isaiah said a branch would sprout because Branches are not thorny or knotted, but straight. And this is why the branch came from the root of Jesse, who was the foundation of the royal race from which the stainless mother had her origin. So she's illustrating for us the fact that Mary came from the line of Jesse, and this branch is said to be straight. Not thorny or knotted, but straight. So we can see that as coherent with Mary being sinless. There's no knots, there's no crookedness, there's no deceit, there's no evil, there's no sin. This is to say that Jesse's family was pure and not corrupted by the stains of sin. And so from the root of that branch arose the sweet fragrance of the virgin's fecundity. And when it has so arisen, the Holy Spirit inundated it so that the tender flower was born from her. Thus, Mary's purity is fitting to the family from which she came, and her purity gives way to this holy flower. This holy flower is born from her because she was filled with and covered by God's Spirit. According to this vision, then, Mary is the branch, and the child born from her is a spotless flower. Next, Hildegard says, Like a flower born in a field, though its seed was not sown there, the bread of heaven arose in her without originating in a mingling with a man and without any human burden. It was born in the sweetness of divinity, untouched by unworthy sin, without knowledge and utterly without the influence of the devious serpent. 
This is a reference to Jesus, the bread of heaven, who is the flower, who deceived the serpent and ascended on high and lifted up with him the sinful human race. Finally, Hildegard says, and because this flower was the Son of God, the Spirit of the Lord rested upon him. So, she's expanding on Isaiah's prophecy that this root from the stump of Jesse, or this branch from the root stump of Jesse, will come out, and then a flower will be on the end of it. And she's saying that Mary is that root from that pure family of Jesse. And the Holy Spirit is inundating this root, making it pure, making it sinless. And then this flower that comes out of this root is Jesus. So, we can extrapolate from this that the she is Mary. The Holy Spirit is always there, united to Mary. And then Jesus is born from this union. Because remember the angel Gabriel announcing to Mary that she would be the mother of the Son of God. He says the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. This will be done by the Holy Spirit. Interesting. If you're still not convinced, continue to read. This also ties in nicely with what Hildegard says in her ninth vision in Book 3 on the Appearance of Wisdom. For from the beginning of the world, when wisdom first openly displayed her workings, she extended in a straight line to the end of time. She is adorned with the holy and just commandments, which are green like the first sprouts of the patriarchs and prophets, who sighed in their tribulations for the incarnation of the Son of God, and white like the virginity of Mary. Wisdom is closely linked with that straightness of the branch from Jesse's root, and it is wisdom who inspired the patriarchs and prophets to long for the coming of God's Son. Further, it is wisdom who caused Mary's pureness. How can we say wisdom did all these things? Because wisdom is closely connected to the word of God. In fact, wisdom is the word of God, according to Hildegard, who says, For when God created all things by his word, great wisdom appeared, for it was so diffused in the word that he was wisdom. Again, that's a reference to the beginning of John's gospel. Jesus, the word, is God. With God in the beginning and nothing to be without him, but through him. Since God created all things through his word, that means his word created the branch, who is Mary. And Mary's purity, as well as the inspiration that flooded the minds and hearts of the patriarchs and prophets. So Jesus is the word. He is God. He created the branch. And he inspired this wisdom that flooded through the hearts and minds of the patriarchs and the prophets. Following this, Hildegard says that the word was invisible when he was not yet incarnate, but when he was incarnate, he became visible. The word who was in the heart of the Father before all creatures, by whom all things were made and without whom nothing was made, again, it's reference to the beginning of John's Gospel, shone forth within time as a flower, visible as a human being and offering good understanding to all humans by his words. Since then, she then asks what we are to do with this. What are we to do with this information? She responds, 
Understanding and wisdom should go together, for man was created by God with wisdom. From all this, we can see that wisdom is constantly present in every action of God, is the very means by which he operates, and that it is God's intent that wisdom be united to human beings. How? How do we see that it's intended that this wisdom be united to human beings? Because Jesus is the word through which God created all things, and we see Jesus referred to as wisdom, as also one in being with the Father and the Holy Spirit. The incarnate word, that word that is God, that was with God from the very beginning, united with the Father and the Holy Spirit, that created all things, that word became man, became incarnate. How? The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, and this word was incarnate in her womb. That wisdom of God was united to humanity in the incarnation. And it didn't just happen as a poof. Oh, there he is. There's Jesus. There's the wisdom of God in human form. Nope. No, 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 no. He became man through a woman. It's fascinating stuff. So to continue on with this intent, God's intent for union with human beings is also a major theme for Hildegard and can be seen throughout her narration of her visions. As Dina Wooters, it's another author that I referenced in this essay, says, Dina Wooters says, the way in which Hildegard's visions situate themselves on the crossroads of the visionary and didactic traditions tell us much about how Hildegard conceives of her project and its goals. The didactic situation, didactic means the, the teaching, the didactic situation that is established is one of direct interaction between God and human. This quote refers to Hildegard's teaching style. Didactic means teaching as being one that seeks to bring the human being into direct contact and interaction with God, thus creating a platform for union between the two. So, that was Hildegard's intention with the Scivias. She intended that her visions be written down, and that humanity would directly encounter God through these visions. Fascinating. This union happens in several ways, one of them having to do with who is speaking to whom in Hildegard's vision. Wooters explains that in this way, while Hildegard is present in her narrative mainly as a narr narratee, and in that capacity as a mediator for the actual audience, God's is the active voice exercising his control on every level of the narrative by explaining, <clears throat> excuse me, by explaining, warning, and judging. So basically, the purpose of the Skivias is that God is the one speaking, and he's speaking through Hildegard. What's that remind you of? Oh, ding, 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 the dialogue. That's what we also see in the dialogue of Catherine of Siena. It's God speaking through Catherine. Okay. This means that it is Hildegard speak this means that it is Hildegard speaking, but it is God's words and voice 
coming through her. She is an instrument and mediator. Additionally, Wooters explains that when Hildegard's visions... Within Hildegard's visions, God behaves within his narrative, as he behaves within the world. It is his creation in which he is automatically present, because it is contained by him, which is filled with his necessary presence, but which he views from a superior height. Here, Wooders means that God is both above and inside of his creation, and that God's being superior to his creation does not mean that he cannot move around within it. This is to say that God can both stand outside of his creation as an observer and place himself within it as one of its characters. This being the case, Wooter says, enables the bridging of narrative levels by the narrator God, who operates on all levels, in the first as well as the third person. In other words, God is capable of traversing the gap between the one who initiates or sets things into motion and the one who is then moved. Wooders then also expounds this further by saying, the narrator is by virtue of his nature part of the universe, he narrates, and can therefore intervene in his own narration. Well, that's a lot of information. What does that mean? It means that while God is outside of time and space, and he created time and space, he created the universe, that does not mean that he cannot act within his creation. Why is that important? Because God became man in Jesus Christ and acted within his creation. Moreover, as stated above, Hildegard is the instrument, and so it is not just her to whom God is speaking. Wooters puts it sorry. Wooters puts it as follows. God makes no secret of the fact that he is, through Hildegard, in fact, directly addressing all people. And while he begins by addressing Hildegard personally, and returns to her frequently by referring to her vision, he addresses a far larger and far more diverse audience in between. That audience is anyone and everyone who reads Hildegard's visions. To take this a step further, Wooter says, the reader as an addressee can be located outside or inside the text. This means that anyone and everyone who reads Hildegard's visions can be both someone on the outside, to whom God is speaking, and someone actually within the vision, taking part in it. That's getting a little trippy, isn't it? <laughs> to take things a step even farther, Wooters explains that the readers of Hildegard's visions are the primary addressees, and that they are expected to do more than just listen. In her own words, in Hildegard's visions, the narrator ignores the boundaries of the text and considers himself to be in the same reality as the readers. And at the same time, the readers find themselves <clears throat> excuse me, represented in the text. The readers find themselves represented in the text. The narrator thus ignores the different narrative levels and acts as if he is able to communicate directly with the audience. It's a fascinating concept. It's kind of like a book that's in 3D. <laughs> it's like the narrator is reaching out through the story to touch you, to grab you by the face and pull you into the story. How do you like that vision? <laughs> Within 
Hildegard's visions, the reader is compelled and almost commanded to participate in what he or she is reading. Therefore, God is not only speaking to Hildegard at the time of the vision, but he's also speaking to anyone and everyone who picks up a text of her visions and begins reading. Finally, in this way, God is directly communicating with the reader, while ignoring all boundaries of space and time. This sort of communication then serves as an ample opportunity for God to make himself present to and connect himself with a wide range of people. The question then can arise as to what the purpose of this communication and connection is. According to Wooter's study of Hildegard's visions, the reader is encouraged to better him or herself. As Wooter says, one thing that becomes clear in reading Hildegard is that authority, charisma, and a prophetic stance do not have to be incompatible with systematic learning and self-improvement. This means that no matter who the reader is or what level of authority, power, or skill he or she possesses, there is still room for growth. Furthermore, God is calling these people to seek this growth. So if one decides to read Hildegard's visions, one should be prepared to be pushed and challenged to develop a closer relationship with God and become a better person. Is that not similar to the dialogue? I think it is. I think it very much is. So the most fascinating thing about this is that it's interactive. God doesn't want you to just listen to it and just be amazed by her visions. God wants you to become a part of this story. God wants you to become a better person and united to himself by listening to these visions, by reading these visions, by allowing yourself to be taken up into these visions. As Wooters puts it, the major advantage is that God and reader can be brought into contact. This means that as a reader meets with God, it is God himself who can teach the reader and reveal to him or her what can and should be done in his or her life. Thus, reading Hildegard's visions may not make one as pure and sinless as Mary or God himself, but it can at least help to bridge the gap that sin creates between God and the sinner. fascinating stuff. Okay. I'm going to skip down through this essay to the summation of what I just described, this interaction between the one reading and God speaking. Hildegard's Skivias is as a kind of audio-visual summa theologiae, or theologiae, however you want to pronounce it, encompassing the whole reality God created nature, God, sorry, God created nature, the incarnation of God's word, redemption, and salvation history. So it was another author, another book that I had referenced in this essay, explains the Skivias as being like Thomas Aquinas's Summa in an audio-visual format. So here we are going through who God is, God creating the world, God becoming incarnate in Jesus Christ, him then redeeming us, and the whole salvation history, all of that that's contained in the Summa, the, the summation of Christian theology, but it's done in an audiovisual format. Hmm. This writer, as I say in my essay, finds this description almost comical because of how it at first seems ridiculous. But then upon reflection, one can see that it is quite accurate. Hildegard's visions are almost like a movie. 
that the reader can place him or herself into and not only relate to one of the characters, but feel as though he or she is one of the characters. This writer also believes that this concept is not too far-fetched of an idea. In fact, considering what has been said above, <clears throat> it may actually be God's intent <clears throat> excuse me, that we do in our modern world view Hildegard's visions in this way. So, we're going to stop this episode there. Because that's a lot of stuff. And I want to give you some time to really reflect on it. Again, I will put a PDF link, or a link to this PDF of my essay, if you would like to read it for yourself and uh, look up these books that I referenced. I do encourage you to do that. And then, I encourage you to stay tuned for part three. We will continue on. We will wrap it up. We will put a nice bow on it. Make it make a little more sense. And then we'll be done. Have a blessed day.